Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 2nd of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, who will be speaking from Jerusalem. And we also have Mark Anderson um, speaking to us from Michigan in the United States. Well, I wanted to kick off in today's news with the subject, of course, of Ukraine, but really the tragedy of Ukraine. And I think this is this is one of the most appalling things of this war that the uh, Western public are simply not being told the true suffering uh, of the Ukrainians uh, in what is clearly now a proxy war for NATO. Um, so let's put up this uh, first image here, which uh, I think is very uh, is very poignant. Uh, we've essentially got rows and rows of flags. And these uh, represent killed in action on the Ukrainian side. Um, I do not believe that these represent all of the uh, problems in all of those killed in, in Ukraine because cemeteries are overflowing and there's been a lot of uh, unhappiness about the fact that uh, soldiers killed couldn't receive proper burials due to problems with the cemeteries themselves. But let's just think about this. Each flag is a soldier killed in action. Uh, these are just some of the total deaths. And the BBC, the UK Ministry of Defence, simply not talking about Ukrainian casualties. Now, I'm putting the 350,000 estimated dead on screen. It is an estimated figure. Um, but those analysing the war um, uh, towards the front are coming up with these very big figures, much bigger than anything that we're hearing in the legacy media, but also deaths in the counteroffensive have been climbing and climbing. And a figure of 45,000 estimated is also being mentioned amongst social media. So I'm not saying these are correct. What I'm saying is it's clear the vast numbers of Ukrainians are being killed. Uh, but at the moment, the BBC, the UK Ministry of Defence, Western media simply doesn't want to talk about this. But what will they talk about? Well, the fact that more weapons, ammunition and now Western troops are going to be put into Ukraine to keep this uh, proxy war and the death going. And uh, if we think about the reality of it, of course, if people are being killed uh, on the battlefield, many other are being maimed. We've seen this with British troops in more localised conflicts. Um, but the tragedy is that people are going to be losing limbs. How many people have lost limbs? We have no idea. Uh, again, analysts on social media suggesting the numbers could be up at 200,000. And this could be realistic. Uh, depending on the numbers killed in action. But uh, what's happening in the background? Well, we've got the West prosthetics industry embedding itself in Ukraine, and uh, they're doing all they can, they say, to help, uh, but also that this is a training op opportunity and a technical investigation opportunity for high-tech prosthetics. This is part of... Um, comment on social media over the weekend and it says that there are already hundreds and thousands of people who've lost their limbs and the estimates here from 200,000 to 500,000. Now again I'm not saying these are correct, I'm simply saying why is it that the West refuses to talk about the tragedy in, in Ukraine? And the uh, comment here also says take one example one German company, Otto Bock, was officially contacted by 50,000 Ukrainian soldiers for, uh, for prosthetics. So this is basically um, very sad. It's tragic. And of course, we simply do not know the true scale of suffering. Now, David, you and I had a little bit of a conversation earlier this morning about what the true numbers of killed in action well, that true number is, we don't know. Uh, but what we do know that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are dying on this battlefield and Western media simply doesn't want to talk about it. Well, this is this is true. I mean, the, the, the figures we don't know. And one of the things that makes it very hard to interpret what's happening here is, is the lack of any on any side about what the actual figures are. 
I understand that the, the basic size of the Ukrainian army is about 500,000, and the Russians started with almost three times that number if you add on all the reserves. So some of the figures that are bandied around seem far too high to me, but what we do know is the, 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 the casualties have been huge. Um, they have been sufficient to affect how the, how the fight and the tactics have changed in order to uh, main and, um, and, and, and cut the casualty numbers because the casualty numbers have clearly been totally unsustainable. Um, so what we're getting is a much longer process of, of, of attritional warfare. Um, with no immediate end in sight. And uh, as we've mentioned many, many times, no um, initiative from any side, certainly not from the West, looking to end this. Indeed. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, David. Well, let's just add um, some other comments around the war. Well, one of the things that's being talked about is Western war fatigue, and I think this is clearly correct, that we're now seeing on the Western side, on the NATO side, countries tiring of the amount of money, effort, and of course, lives that this war is uh, sucking up. But the money continues to be pumped in. And uh, figures here from the BBC uh, just show us vast amounts of money, billions of US dollars, uh, billions of uh, um, from the UK and Germany as well, all going into continuing the war. Uh, this was posted through to me over the weekend, which I wasn't aware of. And I find it extraordinary that we've now got uh, Marina Abramovich being uh, asked to be an ambassador for your Ukraine. Was she the right woman? Well, maybe we would say she is through some of her particularly vile artwork. Um, but this seems to be an extraordinary development in what's happening in the war. Meanwhile, um, we come to the Sunday Telegraph for a really extraordinary front page. This is what it looked like yesterday. And of course, what we've got is the claim that it was Mr. Shapps himself who apparently made a decision to send UK troops into Ukraine. But if we analyse the front page, we've got the serious news in this left-hand column. Uh, but on the right, we've got a distracting, unconnected photo of the Prime Minister and his wife uh, en route to the Conservative conf uh, conference. So basically, um, even though we've got now um, bona fide information that uh, British military personnel are going into Ukraine, uh, the paper says that it was previously being claimed that up to 50 British personnel uh, were there amongst Western special forces earlier this year a matter that the government would never discuss publicly. So who made the decision to get those troops into Ukraine? Was it discussed in Parliament? Why wasn't the UK public informed? And if we follow on through that, a lot of propaganda in that uh, uh, Sunday Telegraph uh, paper. Uh, here we've got everything from the bravery of Ukrainian troops rescuing their comrades from behind the lines to Russia in a threat to annex more uh, regions. And uh, here we've got the Wagner mercenaries are intent on reigniting civil war in Mali. So very, very obvious that the Telegraph is hammering the Russians. They are the people to blame. But this one really took the biscuit because I found it so I think filthy is the word, that apparently um, some photographers who used to use drones to um, take uh, film and video of weddings are now using that to target uh, Russians on the battlefield. And this article contains this quote, sometimes we guard artillery strikes onto Russian position and you will see eight soldiers killed with wild pigs gathering round to eat the bodies afterwards. I'm afraid I have no mercy for them. So the Telegraph seems to have stooped to the absolute gutter in its reporting, but they're very excited. There's the possibility of British troops um, being involved um, in the Kosovo scandal as that, uh, as that uh, grows. And the comment here was that NATO has confirmed that its peacekeeping force, K4, will be increasing its presence after a battle between police and armed Serbs turned a quiet village into northern Kosovo into a war zone. 
And lastly, if you think that the editorial was going to give you some information on the fact we're heading towards World War III, well, the uh, Telegraph simply talked about the 20 mile an hour speed limit and the fact that that nice Mr. Sunak was going to deal with the speed and traffic restrictions which are upsetting many people in the country. So extraordinary cognitive dissonance from the Telegraph, but also buried away um, on uh, a couple of pages later was this, uh, that the Navy is suggesting that people should use pronouns to introduce themselves. So we've got a serious woke agenda destroying the military in UK. And the Telegraph here using the same technique as on the front page uh, because a completely unconnected photo was here on the right. So, um, David, bring you back in. We live in extraordinary times and it's clear that uh, um, we can't trust the legacy media uh, to tell us the truth about really, it seems, any of the important subjects. Correct. Uh, the legacy media are ignoring the issues. They're not dealing with the big issues, such as the threat of a wider conflict. Um, they are quite happy to follow the line that's being posted by the government. So they're not holding the government uh, or the military industrial complex to account. And um, it's, it's going to come to alternative media to ask the questions and to uh, raise the issues because the mainstream, um, the Vichy media, are simply failing. Yeah. Okay, well, take us on to critical race theory, David, because uh, if the Navy's really embracing the woke agenda, this is coming in very fast now. It's coming in very fast, but there's pushback. And uh, once again, we have some good news on this. So the Times reporting uh, that the laws protected opposition to critical race theory. Um, now, the gentleman on this first um, uh uh, picture is Mr. Sean Corby, and the, the lady next to him is his wife. Um, so Mr. Corby um, has uh, written uh, that critical race theory um, is is uh, basically uh, divisive and portrays white people as racist. So he's stood up against this, and he's stood up against such movements as uh, Black Lives Matter, BLM, or By Large Mansions, as we often call them. Um, and um, he was um, taken to task for this, and he's fought back by taking um, uh, ACAS um, to an employment tribunal, claiming he'd been unlawfully discriminated against, and his views were protected under the Equalities Act, the same as his colleagues' views on critical race theory. So in other words, his views that, that critical race theory is harmful are every bit as much protected as the advocates' views. You know, this is everyone's equal under the law. Uh, he was backed by the Free Speech Union. Uh, he argued that a better approach to addressing racism was the one outlined by Martin Luther King, uh, that uh, everyone should be judged by the content of the character, not by the colour of their skin. Now, what happened was um, his, his uh, comments um, were branded as racist, and he was accused of using a platform, public platform to promote racist ideas. Uh, it was suggested that he was in some sort of far-right group. This is not true. Um, and uh, some of his colleagues said they didn't feel safe to be in contact with him um, and questioned his right to be employed by ACAS. So this is a very bitter, nasty opposition that you get. You're, if you push back against the cultural Marxist ideology, you're painted as literally Hitler and they go after your job and your means of supporting your family. It's extremely nasty. Um, now, he took this to, to uh, took the legal route and he won. Um, Toby Young, uh, General Secretary of Free Speech Union, who backed the case, said uh, Sean's belief uh, that we should judge people in the content of character rather than the colour of the skin is eminently sensible and shared by most people, apart from a handful of far-right and far-left activists. Employer sh his employer should not have taken seriously the vexatious complaints of Sean's colleagues um, who claimed that his quoting Martin Luther King made them feel unsafe. So you see how ridiculous it is. But although it was ridiculous and vexatious, the disciplinary procedure did go forward and did accept this. And uh, just to finish this, this item, 
if you go to the New Discourses uh, website, they have a, a, a lexicon of what all these things mean that will describe what critical race theory means. And you'll see there that it basically makes everything about race. It makes everybody who's engaged in this ideology hypersensitized towards race, and it attacks such things as legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, neutral principles of constitutional law. In other words, it attracts all the it attacks all the foundations of Western civilization because that's what it's there for. And it's not about being fair to people who have different color skin or different ethnicity. Um, it's very good news they fought this. It's very good news they won. And that the courts have now established as a legal principle that can be cited as precedent that opposition to critical race theory is itself a protected characteristic. David, thank you very much for that. And that's an important verdict. And of course, the other thing we see is how important it is for even one individual to stand up and challenge what's happening. Um, well, let's bring Mark Anderson in. And of course, Mark, my migration is one of those topics that we're told we can't talk about. And many people are fearful um, about talking about the subject of migration. What have you got to report? Well, it's a rather broad item. Uh, here in the first slide, uh, we have contractor that moved migrants from Florida wins contract to build their tents here. Here is Chicago. That's what the word here is referring to. And Chicago is establishing tent cities uh, for housing large numbers, increasingly large numbers of so-called migrants. And this next slide is from that publication that showed that photo, Cranes Chicago Business. It's a business journal. Uh, the, the mainstream papers just don't even really know what to do with this. They're out to lunch all the time, like we're talking about a few minutes ago. Here we see the city of Chicago partnered with the state of Illinois, liberal governor J.B. Pritzker there, a global cities advocate, last week to quietly award up to $29 million in a contract to erect large tents to serve, as, to serve as base camps in an effort to expeditiously move migrants from the city's police stations before winter. The contract was awarded just a few days after Mayor Brandon Johnson announced plans to move with expediency to transfer the nearly 1,600 migrants currently living in the city's police stations and in the airports and then move them to base camps before winter. And we'll move on from there. This uh, issue kind of mushrooms out. Now, in Texas, there's a very controversial and somewhat nebulous issue going on, and I'll explain. Houston area development, just north of Houston, has become a right-wing rod in immigration. This is, of course, uh, according to the myopic Texas Tribune, which doesn't even do as well as a broken clock. A broken clock is at least right tw uh, twice a day. The Texas Tribune can't seem to do that. But after conservative, uh, moving on, it, it's referring to Colony Ridge, a massive residential development 30 to 40 miles north of Houston in Liberty County. We'll describe this as we go along. That's what's taking center stage in Texas politics. We talked about Chicago. Keep the tent cities in mind. After weeks of reports and conservative media portraying um, Colony Ridge, this development, as a magnet for illegal immigrants, followed by state Republican leaders expressing alarm, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has promised that Colony Ridge will be addressed in an upcoming special legislative session while saying, quote, serious concerns have been raised. The Texas legislature meets every other year officially on the odd number. And so when they call a special session, it's pretty important. And I'll keep going on this one. We're trying to put together as much information as possible, says Abbott, so that I can add to that special session any issue that needs to be enforced in terms of a new law in the state of Texas to make sure that we're not going to have colonies, illegal immigrant colonies, they say, uh, like this in our state. Uh, the precise issues are unclear. Abbott suggested he's worried Colony Ridge has become a no-go zone where the state's ban on sanctuary, city, sanctuary cities is not being enforced. So Texas has banned officially sanctuary cities, but Abbott says this runs the risk of abridging that. Legal experts say there is no law against selling land to people who aren't citizens, and many of the more outlandish claims about the neighborhood have been accompanied with little or no evidence. That's not really true. To um, purchase land in the United States, at least you need a Social Security number, 
and a U.S. ID. And so non-citizens buying land is, I think, especially on the poorer end of the scale, a very unlikely thing, and I think actually would have legal prohibitions. But here in this next slide, we see on that red marker where Liberty County is, where Colony Ridge is located. It's in east central Texas, just north of Houston. Uh, Abbott said the state has issued subpoenas to the developers to find out what's going on financially. Uh, the developing company, Toronto's Houston, which means land for sale in Houston, roughly, has dismissed suggestions that Colony Ridge is a haven for people in the country illegally, saying that's slanderous and unsubstantiated. Get this, though. Developer William Trey Harris, a Colony Ridge developer, is a major campaign donor to Governor Abbott. That I have independently confirmed is true. That uh, company has also given money to the Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, and to the Speaker of the Texas House, Dave Phelan. So on the one side, they're saying we're worried about this development. On the other side, developers of that development have given money to these major politicians in the Lone Star State, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, the development located in rural Liberty County, as I'm showing there, North Houston, is comprised of multiple subdivisions, according to a column that uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick wrote after his flyover in a helicopter, the, the developer told Patrick that the development covers nearly 33,000 acres and is home to about 10,000 people. I've heard much higher numbers, and I've heard it approaches 60 square miles, which is almost the size of Washington, D.C. in size. And this is from the Lieutenant Governor's website itself, the fastest growing community in Texas. Recently, I've read stories on Colony Ridge, wrote Dan Patrick, sometimes called Plume Grove because it's near that tiny city, and I wanted to see it for myself. Until now, Colony Ridge hasn't received much attention from local or national media. However, uh, the developer continued to purchase and clear a lot of land, and people began to take notice. We'll move on from there. And this is the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick describing this during his flyover. It's a massive development covering 50 square miles. Again, I've heard 60, and it's growing, 33,000 acres. It's the fastest growing and biz biggest housing development I've seen anywhere in Texas. So this is uh, another aspect to this. We have the developments in Chicago. Now we have the Colony Ridge controversy in Texas with one side saying it's gonna be a huge haven for illegals, a way to settle them rather than putting them all over the country. The other side saying there's little or nothing to worry about. The developers saying it's all exaggerated or a, a falsehood. Now, moving on from there, this is the Voice of America, uh, part of the propaganda arm of the United States connected to the CIA. Uh, this is a headline, Migrants Face Long Waiting List at the New U.S. Processing Centers in Latin America. So this is the U.S. government's Voice of America on August 30th. And I'm showing the New York Times that I bought here, page A4 on the 22nd of September, sharing a similar perspective, talk about in, talking about these new processing centers. We've got a video clip in a minute. But what's going on, according to Wyatt Watson, one of my better sources in the field about the southern border, is that uh, Biden appears to be developing, in, in Wyatt's opinion, these processing centers so he can uh, encourage more people not to come all the way to the border, process them further away from the United States, and then bring them in without all the controversy that the uh, border jumpers cause, the, the illegal entries uh, at the border, uh, and kind of uh, calm, calm the nerves of many Americans who are very concerned about these things. And then there would be a less visible but uh, increasingly large transfer of illegals from these processing centers throughout Central America and Mexico, and they would be more quietly shuttled into the United States. And the, the fear, Brian, is that they'll then go to places like Colony Ridge and there'll be huge settlements of illegals um, uh, where it'll be a lot less detectable that they're coming in in increasingly large numbers. So it's kind of a broad brushstroke today. Some of this is very tentative, but this gives UK column viewers a very early view, an advanced view of what might be happening. Um, large settlements being quietly um, um, put together of largely illegal aliens um, uh, without Americans being aware 
but supposedly that would reduce the people of uh, uh, who are coming to the border illegally and crossing over, jumping over barbed wire, putting blankets over barbed wire and crawling across, which just happened September 28th, according to Current Revolt, a news source in Texas. But I believe we have a video clip and then it'll kind of round out this initial preliminary report for today, if that's available. When Ninfa Ramos and her children left Venezuela for Colombia five years ago, her adult children found work and the family found legal status and a long-term home here in Medellin, Colombia. But now their income and expenses no longer match up and their situation has become more desperate. Here we are living the same as we lived in Venezuela. We have the fear that it will also be the same. Ninfa takes care of her three young grandchildren while their parents work long hours in bakeries and as a cargo truck driver. A few months ago, they decided to go to the U.S., where they have family in Florida. They hope to find a way to get there legally and quickly. If tomorrow they tell us it's approved and we need to leave, we'll leave immediately. But the quick legal entry to the U.S. that Ninfa and her family want is unlikely. She is one of 28,000 people in Colombia who applied to new U.S.-run facilities called Safe Mobility Offices. They're processing centers in Latin America designed to screen people for safe and orderly ways to reach the U.S., instead of making the dangerous trek to the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, everywhere we go in the world, turmoil, and uh, as a result of migration, and of course, we have said many times, we'll repeat it, Peter Sutherland, former ambassador for migration in the U.N., said that the migration was necessary to break down the homogeneity of the nation state. Uh, David, let's come over to you because, of course, uh, Israel, often a country with uh, strife internally. Yes, and uh, as we've been reporting for some time, the strife has now uh, gone very much beyond uh, 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 Arab uh, versus Jew uh, conflict. And there are many other divisions within Jewish society. So this is illustrated with the next story, which took place on uh, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the, the holiest uh, day in uh, in Jewish belief. It's um, viewed as a very strict annual Sabbath, and essentially the whole country shuts down. Uh, there's no overflights. The airspace is closed. The roads are empty. Uh, one of the major hazards is the the non-observant Jews take to the take to the roads with skateboards and and bicycles, and there are uh, several hundred injuries that have to be treated with, with skateboarding accidents because the whole day is is very different from every other day. Um, and amongst the uh, amongst the religiously observant, this is viewed as ex- an, an extremely important day. So what we have here is a Jerusalem uh, Post uh, reporting fights breaking out in a, a Tel Aviv prayer. A meeting on Yom Kippur, fights between the secular Israelis and the religious Israelis. Um, now, the uh, the, the uh, it was uh, in a place um, called um, sorry, I beg your pardon, uh, Square. The, the square has uh, the name of the square has momentarily gone from me. Um, but the square is not a square. The square is uh, circular and has a pool in the middle and. A sta- and, a, and a fountain, and from this fountain was hung a dividing line of, uh, of Israeli flags to separate uh, the women from the men. This was viewed as being unacceptable by the secular Israelis of the area, and the argument escalated until it became a fight. The political response to this has been very interesting. So the prime minister's weighed in. He's blamed left-wing extremists and he's gone on to say uh, about them um, that uh, the people of Israel wanted to unite in Yom Kippur in prayer for forgiveness and unity. Um, uh, to our surprise, the Jewish nation on the holiest Jewish day, left-wing protesters rioted against Jews as they prayed. Uh, it seems there are no limits, no norms, no exception from hatred for the left-wing extremists. I, like most of Israel's citizens, reject this. There's no room for such violent behavior. So very much painting uh, the left-wing secular Israelis as being utterly beyond the pale. Meanwhile, from the left-wing secular uh, uh, aspect, here we have an opinion piece in Haaretz 
um, talking about the knit, the knitted kipper of Yom Kippur worshippers in Tel Aviv has brought disaster for Israel. Now, the knitted kipper essentially illustrates pre- the, the wearer's uh, religious affiliation, and uh, Gideon Levy is um, speaking as Dizengoff. Dizengoff Square, that's the, the name I couldn't remember. He said, uh, when they come to Dizengoff Square, they bring the arrogant nationalist ideology with them. Um, and he goes on to say, the settlers and the Rebecca's members of Rosh Yudi and the supporters are the community that is forcibly depriving the Palestinian neighbours of these values, and now they're trying to gradually do the same in Tel Aviv. So they're seeing the religious as a threat. They have no right to benefit from liberalism. They are its enemies, and he goes on to say, the knitted kippah has become the symbol that sparks resistance. Many of those who wear it bear responsibility for this. It's a symbol borne on the heads of more and more IDF officers. He then concludes, the knitted kippah makes its wearer a suspect until proven otherwise. The knitted kippah has brought down disaster. Israel, this needs to be said. So the point I want to make here is that the, the division is now so fundamental that one side is painting the other side as quite close to being subhuman, certainly guilty until proven innocent. Um, and um, th- this is essentially the, the view from both extremes. It's a very much more divided society than it was 20 years ago. And uh, as you see, it is more inclined to go to violence, even on a day like Yom Kippur, that, than, uh, than, it, than it's been at any point um, since uh, the establishment of the state. Now, David, thank you for that. Extraordinary, isn't it, that the breakdown and the chaos that we see in Western countries, we see it in the United States and within Europe, but we've also got similar effect um, revealing itself in Israel. Well, let's uh, move on. If you like uh, what the UK column is doing, then please join us. Uh, Become part of the community. It gives you the opportunity to talk and exchange information and ideas with other people. Uh, You can also help us by making a purchase at the UK Column shop. And of course, the key thing is that the material that we put out is specifically designed to be shared. So take it and spread it. That will make us uh, particularly happy. Now, just a mention of events over the weekend in Sweden, because, of course, Mike Robinson was in Sweden for uh, this particular event on guard for the liberty of mankind. Some really excellent speakers. Uh, That was streamed out live at eight o'clock UK time on Saturday morning. And we've had some really good responses from people who have seen it. It will go up in due course, but um, a great event and a lot of extremely important information uh, which came out for that. Um, You can go to the website link there if you want to find out more. That's still working, I believe. And uh, yes, a lot of people came together to speak out and warn about uh, what is happening now tomorrow we've uh, tomorrow at one o'clock we've got a, an interview this is mike robinson vanessa Beely, talking to former labor mp chris williamson and essentially the theme is why at the moment is there no call for peace there's plenty of calls for war as we've just demonstrated with our report on the the uh, sunday telegraph um, but it appears very few people are calling for peace. So I'm sure that's going to be an interesting interview. I'd also like to uh, flag this one up. We've received several emails that Michael uh, Benicia um, has put out a very heartfelt plea that his daughter has been taken by a combination of the police and social services. He thinks this is as a result of his work and he's saying he, he will need help Uh, to get his daughter back. Um, We will give you more information on this on Wednesday, uh, but this is just a preliminary report so that you can check it for yourselves. Um, We've also, I'd like to remind people, a very, very few tickets are remaining for the AV13 event, which is Sunday the 22nd of October. So if you're in the Milton Keynes or London area and you can make it, Uh, You should be able to get a ticket, but there are just a few. And uh, emails, we're always getting interesting emails. People (coughs) send us um, information about all different subjects, but this particular lady, Jackie, picked up on a comment about the T4 program. This was the Nazi German program to kill uh, disabled people. And uh, uh, in this comment, 
the BBC, of course, is coming to the fore because um, the lady is saying that the BBC showed us the eugenics process of removing ventilation and causing death for those with learning difficulty simply for having a lower IQ than that of the average population. And um, she's saying that uh, this has happened in her own family and the medical, uh, the medical system is not working and essentially people are not safe when they go into the medical system uh, because we're now leading them into an end-of-life program. You can freeze that and have a look on screen, but it's a, a pretty serious comment. Now, David, is there any hope for the states? Uh, Trump, of course, is speaking out more and more. Um, but he's been making some particularly interesting comments and uh, I think cocking a snoot at Biden. Well, yes, I, I, want, I want this as brief, um, a brief report here just to let people know exactly what the state of play is in uh, American politics. So here we see uh, CNN politics um, talking about uh, the, the polling results. So the last time a presidential frontrunner had this much of a of a primary lead, he became the nominee. Now, Trump is so far ahead, he's out of sight, and he's not even attending the debates. Uh, he's supported by 58% of the potential GOP primary, primary electors. Um, he's 43 points ahead of the next placed person, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Right? This is he's absolutely out of sight. He's not even bothering to attend the debates because he doesn't need to. Now, if we then look at this on a national scale and how he might stack up against Biden, well, uh, the Washington Post commissioned a poll and found that he was 10 points ahead, 52 to 42, ahead of Joe Biden. Um, although they then suggested that their own poll was was perhaps misleading. Uh, so the, the, the point I want to make here is Trump, for all of his woes, his legal woes, for all of the constant drumbeat of, um, of prosecution that he's facing, is still massively popular in the States and is looking, as these polls are to be believed, like a winner. Um, and he's playing some of the rest of, of the things for laughs. Whatever he might lack as a, as a political leader, and I think he does lack more than a few things, uh, one of them isn't comedy timing. So we've got a little video here uh, of, of him um, describing Joe Biden. And I think this sort of mockery is going to be effective. Does anybody think he's going to make it to the starting gate? I mean, the guy can't find his way off of a stage. Look, here's a stage. Here's a stage. I've never seen this stupid stage before. Right? I've never seen it. But if I walk left, there's a stair. And if I walk right, there's a stair. And this guy gets up. Where am I? Where the hell am I? Where am I? Nah, he's terrible. Terrible. So, comedy timing, comedy gold, actually. If whatever else it will be, it will be dull. Um, Mark, I'm sure you want to say a few words. Yeah, uh, uh, Trump, Trump has sort of that Rodney Dangerfield one-liner uh, approach and delivery at times. He can be very funny. But I'll, I'll say something else that I think you'll find interesting, David and Brian. He started saying very recently, left-wing liberal fascists. Fascism is usually a epithet or a, a pejorative reserved for the so-called far right that's supposedly threatening the world and menacing the world. And I've, I've covered Trump in person in 2016 in Austin, 2020 in Las Vegas. I've watched him very closely. He's never said liberal left-wing fascists before. He's turning it around. He's pinning that fascist label on the left, which is a good tactic because they are much more likely, compared to his philosophy, to combine corporate power with government power and create kind of a crony capitalism, which, according to Ron Paul and others, is kind of the new fascism or the, the most accurate definition of fascism. So in terms of tactics, 
whatever Trump lacks in his bookish ways, he's not exactly a librarian or a super intellectual. He makes up for it with tactics and strategy. He's a good tactician, and calling him left-wing fascist is part of that um, those clever tactics that he's so adept at. Okay. Mark, thank you very much for that. I'll just add, add to it, I still find it incredible that uh, a nation such as America would allow Biden to remain president when clearly he's not in a mental condition to enable him to function as president. This says something about America as a whole, but we'll have to save the rest of the conversation for extra. Um, let's come back on to the Telegraph and the despicable reporting by the uh, Telegraph. The subject here is Kosovo. This is again from the Sunday edition. And uh, this is part of a column. Putin is opening up a new front against the West. The Balkans are set to explode unless urgent action is taken by NATO to quell Russian and Serbian aggression in Kosovo. Now, the interesting thing is this is the journalist, Ivana Stradner. And um, we then ask a question, really. It's comment, apparently. So this is a lady just commenting on what's happening. But if you delve to the bottom of the article, you find that she's a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. This sounds wonderful, but what is it? I did a little bit of research for our viewers and listeners today. So here she is. Uh, you can simply search for her and she comes up as a research fellow, cyber disinformation Interna um, international organizations, Russia and Ukraine. And uh, this is part of the comment in the article. She said that Serbia and Russia have been preparing the Serbs for escalations in Kosovo for months, inflaming tensions in the Balkans to distract the West from its war in Ukraine. They have flooded the information space with propaganda. Remember that, thrown back. They have flooded the information space with pro propaganda repeating the old claim that Kosovo belongs to Serbia. Uh, she went on, uh, NATO has announced it's beefing up its troop presence in Kosovo with the UK Ministry of Defence transferring command of an army battalion to NATO to provide assistance, but it must do more and quickly to quell the violence and warn off Russia and Serbia. And here towards the end, three decades after the bloody breakup of Yugoslavia, Ethnic tensions in the Balkans have never gone away. Despite NATO's overall military superiority, it has a weak hand in the Balkans and Russia continues to outmaneuver it there. It is time that NATO strengthened its presence in the region and put Russia on the defensive. So was this just comment or was something else working? Well, let's have a look at the organization, Defense of Democracies, and very quickly we can see something else emerge. Uh, in the first uh, part of the introduction, it says that the uh, foundation is a Washington DC based nonpartisan uh, research institute focusing on quote, national security and foreign policy. And if we move on down, it says it conducts in-depth research, produces accurate and timely analyses, identifies illicit activities and provides policy options, all with the aim of strengthening US national security and reducing or eliminating threats posted by adversaries and enemies of the United States and other free nations. So the Telegraph is, I believe, misleading readers because this is not ordinary comment. This is highly focused American political commentary. And if we add a bit more about the foundation, it said it was funded after the attacks of September the 11th, 2001. And if we come into the final paragraph here, it says that it houses three centers on American power. So this is a political organization clearly designed to protect, uh, project American power and defend the United States. So this is not unbiased commentary by this young lady. It's on the contrary, highly biased. But if we look at some of the people, uh, you can freeze the screen to look at this. You've got people working at very high levels of the, um, the US government, U US Special Operations Command for Counter threat finance and counter network operations. This is just a few of the people, there are many of them. 
Uh, we've got uh, uh, Miss Paula J. Dobriansky serving on the Board of Advisors on the Centre of Economic and Financial Power. And um, she's a foreign policy expert and former diplomat. Uh, but if you look, she, she, she was also working as global head of government and regulatory affairs at Thomson Reuters. So we've got a mix of politics uh, and uh, the media. And if we just give you one, one more, this is uh, Frank uh, Silufo directing the McCary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure. And uh, he's also been working at very high level with the Homeland Security Advisory Council. So let's put the article back in. The uh, Telegraph said it was comment, uh, but if you do just a little bit of research, you'll see that what, what is really going on here is this is uh, US policy, very stringent policy to protect America at whatever cost to anybody who dares stand in their way. Just very uh, quickly, Mark, I'll let you come back in there because uh, these um, so-called uh, unbiased think tanks are growing at an incredible rate in America and, of course, in UK. Yeah, they're a very powerful influence. Uh, they're they're really uh, uh, they're more uh, surreptitious than government. They're they're more secretive than government, and they tend to formulate policy, and then government does the final adjustments. I call them the kitchens of the new world order. They kind of mix everything together. They talk about things like actionable research. You notice those words in the. FDD literature that you just showed, actionable research. So they do a lot of preparation. The government puts on the final touches and the people are none the wiser in, in terms of the general population. So it's very good that UK column is always shining a light on this organization, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the CFR, of course, and many others. As I've mentioned, in the United States alone, under the umbrella of World Affairs Council of America, there are 90 such think tanks under WACA alone. 90 think tanks that are under the umbrella of the World Affairs Councils of America. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. Uh, well, of course, if migration is affecting uh, the states, uh, but the migrants are getting a lot of support and a lot of money thrown at them, is the same thing happening for the ordinary man and woman in the street? It appears maybe not in UK. Is that correct, David? Well, we're being ever more highly regulated. So this next story, it's now, uh, you now require a government licence to operate a bed and breakfast in Scotland. Um, if you have a holiday home, a flat, a yurt, a cottage, a lodge, a guest house, or even a spare room, you need government permission and you need to have a government licence in order to well, do anything with that. Um, so we've got here mygov.scot, uh, a, a website, which the very name of which I find offensive because we are not a government and they are not us, but it's describing an overview of short-term licences. So from the 1st of October, just passed, uh, you must have a licence before you offer short-term lets. Operating without a licence is a criminal offence and you could be liable to a £2,500 fine. Um, so that's what they're threatening us with. Uh, there's many types of license. Even if you're just sharing a, a, a single room in your home, this requires a license. Um, so uh, it's very uh, comprehensive. And uh, it's also very confused. So we have the Times here talking about the utter confusion because uh, it transpires that having a home swap where you swap your house with somebody else and you both go on holiday in the other person's house and no money changes hands, that is also going to require a license in Scotland, even though it was announced initially that this wasn't the case. So hence the confusion. Um, and we have here a piece from the National on this, uh, but they do quote at length um, Fiona Campbell from the Association of Scotland's self-caterers. So she represents the ordinary small businessmen, businesswomen who are running all these little uh, ventures around Scotland that makes the tourist industry work. And she said, today it's with a heavy heart that I have to apologise to self-catering businesses and small accommodation operators across Scotland and to everyone whose business and livelihoods depend on tourism who will feel the effect. Unfortunately, the Scottish Government has chosen to ignore small business owners and the arguably unintended consequences of this legislation 
and will begin to take hold and impact across Scotland in the coming months. It's with sincere regret that I feel have let down responsible business owners who have made life-changing decisions to close the doors as a result of Scottish government's intransigence. The legislation doesn't add up and it's already destroying people's livelihoods. Um, so this seems to be the pattern. Small, the livelihoods of ordinary men and women are being destroyed by the state at every turn. And just to finish this, we have a tweet from the excellent Moya Ali, who's done so much to try and improve the state in Scotland. She says, rest in peace my pension, and I can't let my flat anyway. The retrospective planning requirements is an effective plan. Well done, Greens. You have you're essentially adversely affected my income, and hence that of the public post. There's less money for social housing now. And what she's explaining here is that not only do we have this extra legislation, but we've got... Uh, the planning law is being used to change people's behaviour. And there's a lot of this coming about. Um, re uh, renting out a room or, or, or putting a, so a short-term let uh, with, your, uh, with a flat or your, your main residence has been defined as sui generis, a kind of its own under planning law. And you therefore need to have a planning consent for change of use to make your dwelling capable, under planning law, of being uh, used as a holiday let. And um, this, is how, this is how things which were perfectly legal have been made illegal and made impossible in this heavily regulated society. Thank you, David. And of course, the other thing happening is that the government is hoovering up a lot more data about people, um, presumably that they'll, they'll be taking tax off this in, in uh, in the not too distant future. Mark, let's bring you back in because if we're talking behavioural change, uh, we need to be looking at matters to do with pandemics and reactions to them. Yeah, this is a review slide from two weeks ago. I had a week off due to some changes at UK Column. Um, this is from the Daily Skeptic. I showed this back then, two weeks ago, UN set to agree on a new political declaration on pandemics next week, and it's a horror show. While on September 20th for UK column, I covered another WHO virtual press conference, and I uh, put a brief article just to get things rolling on my Truthhound blog, thetruthhound.com, where it's posted right now. Here's the headline, UK column firsthand, WHO proudly announces the UN September 20 high-level declaration on pandemics. I covered the event. I took that picture with my tablet as a screenshot during the event. You can actually take photos, who knew? And this is a little bit from my article at The Truth Hound. This writer attended a virtual WHO press conference September 20th to document what the New York Times, the illustrious newspaper of record, evidently has failed to report, including in its September 21 and September 22 editions, and that is the WHO's announcement that the United Nations 193 member states did indeed approve, uh, or that is, they gave a green light, they approved a high-level political declaration on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, quote, end quote. And this is something from uh, Tedros. The declaration is a strong signal from countries that they are committed to learning the lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic, or oh, really and to strengthening the world's defenses against pandemics, WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus has stated at the beginning of that September 20th midday press conference, and that was immediately after the UN General Assembly discussed and green-lighted this declaration. Curiously, I wrote, the Times reported on different UN General Assembly matters going on at the very same time concerning climate change and concerning Ukraine with nary a word, in other words, nothing, on the relentless UNWHO movement toward a pandemic treaty and the updated international health regulations, both of which are on a parallel track. <clears throat> the treaty, always referred to as an accord or instrument by the UN and the WHO, apparently to downplay the matter in the eyes of the US Senate that's tasked with consenting to treaties, that treaty is targeted for completion, as we reported in May of 2024. This high-level declaration approved September 20th is a major step toward that goal. Pretty much an exclusive here for UK Column, as far as I can tell. Moving on, I'll kind of cherry-pick this. I think it's best to probably go uh, to Tedros' comment, but before I do that, 
I'll, I'll read my top paragraph from thetruthhound.com. Apparently, there were no general assembly statements that the pandemic's lessons learned also could or should include the clear hazards, the clear hazards of receiving experimental mRNA COVID injections erroneously defined as traditional vaccines that were rushed to market with little in the way of carefully administrated experimental trials based on honest science. Typical assembly statements, uh, they read out of the same hymn book as the General Assembly commented on this. Uh, Thailand's delegate, for example, stressed that a new paradigm of cooperation is needed worldwide to enhance pandemic preparedness en route to digital health systems. Malta's spokesman noted, what happens anywhere happens everywhere, as all the delegates concurred that the next worldwide pandemic is only a matter of time. And Tedros himself, your friend and mine, said the following, we owe it to those we have lost to learn the painful lessons COVID-19 has taught us and to make the changes that will keep our children and grandchildren safer from the pandemics of the future. Because we know that the next pandemic is a question of when, not if. In the declaration approved today, September 20th, this is at the press conference, member states have demonstrated that even at this time of division and polarization, it's still possible for countries to come together to agree on a shared response to shared threats. A lot of globalese being spoken here. It is the same spirit of collaboration that we urge countries to demonstrate as they continue their negotiations on the pandemic accord, I have to put the word treaty in there because they don't want to call it that, and the amendments to the international health regulations. And I believe we have a little bit more. These are the key things that I covered at that press conference. So they've taken this next step on the high-level declaration. Now, just today, literally today, as we speak, in Geneva, this is what's going on. And uh, we're winding up here. Um, as of today, they're having the strategic advisory group uh, of experts on immunizations, or SAGE, holding their regular meeting 25 through 29 September. And they're, um, they're talking about the outcome of that. In other words, the press conference today, October 2nd, is about the outcome of that meeting 25 through 29 September to discuss recommendations on strategies and the uses of vaccines uh, up to and included in COVID-19 vaccines. So there's this strategic advisory group of experts on immunization uh, talking about the, the COVID vaccine and other matters. It's happening today. I believe we had the list of participants as we wind up. Uh, that includes Tedros, the Director General of the WHO, Hannah Noynek, uh, the chair of this SAGE organization, Diane Wirth, chair of the Malaria Policy Advisory Group, Dr. Kate O'Brien, Director, Department of Immunization, Vaccines and Biologicals, WHO, et cetera. Uh, I would join that press conference, but it's happening literally in uh, two minutes. So that'd be a little difficult, but that's the latest, Brian. Okay, thank you very much for that alert, uh, Mark, and a very important one it is. Um, just before we come back to you, David, a little bit of a segue, really. This is another section from Sunday's Telegraph. NHS bans useful anaesthetic to hit net zero target. And what's really happening in this report is that um, anaesthetists um, and, the, and the key lady is Dame Julio Slingo, uh, the Met Office former chief scientist, is basically saying that the NHS claim that by getting rid of an anaesthetic, we're going to save the planet. She's saying it's nonsense. And uh, up to 500 other scientists are backing her. So we do seem to have some pushback. But clearly, uh, the claim about climate change and ultimately net zero is one of the most powerful agendas that we face. What if, David, what have you got? And she's, and she's right. It's nonsense. And, and let's just explain very quickly why. So this next slide here. Uh, busy slide, but basically there's a curve. That top curve was developed theoretically by the very excellent Max, Max Planck, um, one of the most major physicists of the uh, early part of the 20th century. And that is the curve of the total emissions from the Earth 
through space, all the heat that's lost from the Earth, if there's no greenhouse gases at all, and you see it's 394 watts per square meter. The, the, the jagged line was developed by Carl uh, Schwarzschild, and that's the amount of energy that's actually leaving. And you see there's different bits where it's, there's a gap, and, and, and that's caused by different greenhouse gases. Uh, the black line... Uh, is, is where we are just now. The green line is where we would have if there was no CO2 at all in the atmosphere. And of course, there's no CO2 because it's plant food. Everything's dead, right? So that's not a, a possible outcome. But the black line is where we are just now. And you see that it's 277 watts per square meter that's being lost. If the CO2 doubled to 800 parts per million, um, you get the red line, which you can hardly spot the difference. That's 274 watts per square meter. There's less than a 1% difference. CO2 is not a problem. Anything that was going to come from CO2 is A, beneficial, and B, has already happened. Uh, and, and eliminating useful anesthetics over this um, scam is truly insane, and, it's, and it's, it's extremely unscientific and ignorant in every way possible. Now, uh, on the subject of being ignorant in every way possible, we go to the European Commission. They've got a, an EU emissions trading system. It's just worth bearing in mind. It's been, um, been cranked up and strengthened all the time, but it's worth bearing in mind the significance of this. This is the cornerstone of the EU's policy to combat climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's the world's first major carbon market, and it remains the biggest carbon market in the in uh, in the planet. Uh, Euractiv is reporting on this. this. They're saying Europe's carbon border tariff starts applying, causing jitters in the market. So also on Sunday, the 1st of October, uh, just passed, this, this new mechanism is coming to start to essentially tax anyone exporting into the EU from a less heavily regulated um, economies. So this is going to hit um, Africa, East Asia, uh, economically, and it's going to be uh, making everything more expensive in Europe. And we'll be then wondering why we have a crisis of affordability for ordinary people. On the subject of affordability for ordinary people, the Scottish Family Party have uh, supplemented the Glasgow Low Emission Zone sign, and they've asked a question, can you afford a newer car? Yes, drive on. No, get out and walk. And they're making a very important point here that it's the poor who will be carrying the can and who will have a, a more limited, um, 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 quite possibly shorter life because of all of this um, scientific um, uh, deception. And uh, just to finish on this, we have a little song by Klaus Schwab um, courtesy of the various AI tools now available on the internet. And uh, it's based on um, uh, um, Bobby McFerrin's uh, hit, um, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And it's, uh, it's, it's quoting the great uh, World Economic Forum slogan that they've tried very hard to live down and we're not going to allow them to, to live it down. And that is, own, you will own nothing and be happy. So... Uh, Here's a little bit of entertainment from uh, Klaus Schwab. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to hear it in your pot. You'll own nothing and be happy. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no car. But 24 booster shots in your arm Oh, nothing Be happy You can't even buy shit in the store Because of your low social credit score Oh, nothing Be happy You'll own nothing and be happy. Be happy and eat the bugs. 
I, I, Mark was really enjoying that. Maybe Mark, could you, would you like to say a word or two? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, Klaus is singing now. You know, he needs to get out and, and not be so serious. I, I'm sure that's him, right? <laughs> Rather beautifully. Right, okay. Um, we've got one, one slide to uh, finish on, David. Yes, a big shout-out to Workhouse. I was on Twitter and commenting on um, the fact that uh, the founder of um, the um, uh, feminist Wicca in America had said there was a, a, a an extremely close relationship between witchcraft and feminism, and I pointed out that both Nicola Sturgeon has announced that she's a feminist to, to the tips of her fingers, and she was busy um, pardoning all the witches that were formerly burned in Scotland four or five hundred years ago. I, I wondered if there was any link. And Workhouse, thank you very much, came back with this illustration of Nicola Sturgeon hard at work. And I thought that was beautifully done. Well, that must be allegedly, David. <laughs> thank, thank you very much for that. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, today's news. A very big thank you to all our viewers and listeners, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us. And uh, as we always say, we can only do what we do with your financial support. So thank you all very much indeed. We will be back in a few minutes time for UK Column Extra. Uh, we've got some serious subjects to cover, uh, but also we will be giving you an update and a few more uh, photographs of the new studio. So if you're interested in what things are beginning to look like, join us for extra time. We'll see you there. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>